0: Let's try that again. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Alex and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright and there's no water in my glass. <laughs> it's like someone tempted me. Oh, was it because thirst is one of the themes of the sermon? Is that, <laughs> did, someone, did someone know that? That would be very funny if that was why there's no water, but where was I? Good morning. Good morning. We are going to be looking at the Apostles' Creed again today. It's our fourth Sunday in the Creed, and we're going to look at the part today where it talks about how Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. So Jesus is at the heart of the Creed. The Creed, as we've seen, is this amazing summary of our Christian faith. And the story of Jesus actually takes up the longest part of the Creed, So today we come to the end of his life. He suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried and descended to hell. We've seen how the creed gives us um, the essentials of what we believe. And we get the word creed itself from the Latin word for belief. And so it begins, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And then today, we're looking at suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. So last week, we looked at the one human person who is presented positively in the Creed. The Virgin Mary gets a high profile here as a model of faith for us, and as the most central player in the historical reality of Jesus, that he was born a human being in a certain place at a certain time. This week might make less sense. Thank you. There's another name in the creed, but it's not one you would expect to find highlighted. Pontius Pilate was no hero. He's the one who handed Jesus over to be crucified. So why mention him at all? Well, we're going to try to answer that question today. We're going to open our Bibles shortly, but let's pray before we do that. Holy Spirit, would you help us to see the grace and truth of Jesus this morning in your word? Would you enable us to see you, God the Father Almighty, as a God who loves us, and to put our trust in you. We pray this in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our first reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Matthew. Chapter 27, verses 11 to 26. Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor, "'Are you the king of the Jews?' the governor asked him. Jesus replied, "'You have said it.' But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. "'Don't you hear all these charges they're bringing against you?' Pilate demanded. But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise." Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? He knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Just then, as Pilate was seated on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message. Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? The crowd shouted back, Barabbas! Pilate responded, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They shouted back, Crucify him! Why? Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, Crucify him! Pilate saw he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing, so he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours." And all the people yelled back, We will take responsibility for his death, we and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Our second reading is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 19, verses 28 to 30. And we encounter Jesus at this point on the cross. and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Imagine with me the city of London in 1666. As the great fire consumes everything in its path, the body of a man is found in the ruins of St. Paul's Cathedral, stabbed in the neck. Thumbs tied behind his back. James Marwood is forced to hunt the killer through the city's devastated streets. There, he encounters a, a determined young woman who will stop at nothing to secure her freedom. When a second murder victim is discovered, Marwood is drawn into political and religious intrigue involving powerful and dangerous people. And he comes across the path of a killer with nothing to lose. You with me? <laughs> Don't you love that? Yeah. That's, that's from the back cover of a book I read this summer, The Ashes of London by Andrew Taylor. It was a great read, completely absorbing, just the thing for a vacation. I think the reason we enjoy novels and movies and TV shows about crime and punishment, whether they're <laughs> authored by Dostoevsky or John Grisham or whether they're just pure escapist pulp fiction is that they stir something deep inside of us. We want justice. That is at the heart of our human nature. We want to know who is innocent and who is guilty, and we want the guilty person to pay. So these are timeless questions, and they're at the heart of Christian faith also. And they lead us this morning to a reflection on the doctrine of the atonement. Which is the truth we express every time we say that Jesus died for our sins. And we say that a lot around here. This morning, we're going to ponder the meaning of the cross in Matthew 27 and John 19 by considering the suffering of Jesus in three aspects. First of all, its innocence Jesus suffered innocently in his silence. Secondly, its depth. It is the deepest suffering in the history of suffering when Jesus says from the cross, I am thirsty. And third, it's purpose. It's the hope we have beyond suffering. And we see that in the final words that Jesus speaks when he says, it is finished. So the cross's meaning becomes clearer as we ponder the innocence of Jesus the depth of his suffering, and the purpose of it, to give us hope. So who is this guy, Pontius Pilate, and why is he in the Creed? Well, Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea from 26 to 36 AD. He represented the might of the empire. But when he meets Jesus, Pilate is the one who's caught off guard. When Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replies strangely, You have said it, which basically means, so you say, or if you say so. Jesus doesn't really reply. He doesn't say yes or no. It's the equivalent of silence. He's going to force Pilate to do the talking here. But Pilate doesn't have much to say. He's running the trial, but he has little interest in the truth. Four times he asks the crowd what he should do. Twice, he gives them a choice. He will release Jesus or the murderer, the terrorist, Barabbas. The crowd wants Barabbas freed. At the end, one final time, he asks the crowd what he should do with Jesus. All of it makes you long for a real quality detective, doesn't it? Someone like Hercule Poirot or Sherlock Holmes. Someone who sees the truth and isn't afraid to speak it, who sums it up in that final scene that we all wait for at the end of certain movies and books. Pilate knows very well that these religious leaders who want Jesus dead only arrested him because they envied his power and his popularity. And here in Matthew's account, we even have this story about Pilate's wife having a vision of the innocence of Jesus. So the evidence is overwhelming. Why then would Jesus be silent? Wouldn't you speak up if you were in shoes, anything like his there? Well, there are a few reasons, I think. First of all, his silence shows his willingness to go to the cross. Jesus, we see over and over again in the Gospels, was always outsmarting his enemies. They were trying to trap him, but he was always too quick for them. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus' crucifixion, he said something that changed the world to his father in prayer. He said simply, your will, not my will, your will be done. And so his silence shows that he was willing to lay down his life. His silence also makes clear where guilt and innocence lie. Maybe you've heard or seen in a movie the option people have of taking the Fifth Amendment, right? We talk about taking the Fifth. Well, in Canadian law, we have the same thing. Someone who is accused cannot be forced to incriminate themselves. But Jesus could have testified to his own innocence here. He doesn't do that because it's only through his sacrifice, the sacrifice of one, the only one, who was ever perfectly innocent that the guilty can go free. The silence of Jesus also reveals the contrast. If you think back to when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, before all the events that led to the cross, the crowd at that time greeted him with loud hosannas. But now, the same crowd is is chanting, is shouting, crucify him. So Pontius Pilate is complicit here despite his attempt to wash his hands of the blame. He is decidedly not innocent. The one about to be punished is the only one without guilt, completely. And so what we're witnessing here is the greatest miscarriage of justice in human history. But it's the way God has chosen to overthrow all evil and suffering, Christians believe. So we see this contrast, not just in what we've read from Matthew and John, but also in the Creed, the contrast from Hosanna to crucify him. Last week we looked at the Virgin Mary, a poor young girl, the lowest of the low, In the very next line of the Apostles' Creed, we come to Pilate, a rich, powerful man at the top of society, with the force of the Roman Empire behind him. But despite all appearances to the contrary, only the one truly favored by God will last, will live, will flourish. Are we prepared to see beyond the surface appearance of where power lies in the world to where it truly lies? Or will we sell ourselves cheaply for the power that is not of God? And so Jesus was flogged and turned over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. He endured terrible physical suffering. And yet it's only what we read in John where he says... I'm thirsty that we start to see the true depth of his suffering. Canada has a lot of water. I'm not sure if you knew this, but we have in this country 7% of the world's renewable water supply, and yet we only have 0.5% of the world's population. So we are rich in water, and we take water for granted. You probably did this morning if you bathed before you came here, and I hope you did. (laughs) Canadians are among the highest per capita water users in the world. We're almost never thirsty, right? (sighs) Well, that's us, but the people we encounter whose stories are told in the Bible lived at a time and in a part of the world where many would have experienced the suffering of literal thirst, and often. Even more, if you delve into the symbols that we find in the Bible, the metaphor of thirst in Scripture represents something beyond the thirst we feel when we haven't had water for a while. It represents the pain of spiritual emptiness and ultimately of death. In the prophets and the Psalms, including our call to worship this morning, when people turn away from God, they're described as dying of thirst. And this kind of language tells us that there's something your soul needs as much, even more, than your body needs water. If you don't have the wellspring of God's grace and truth at the center of your life, if you give in to the temptation to lower the bucket of your soul into anything other than God, scripture says that you will die of thirst, an eternal thirst. We're warned about that. And so when Jesus says, I'm thirsty, he's fulfilling prophecy. And he has Psalm 22 in mind here, where we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it is melted within me. My mouth is dried up, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus is saying, as he quotes from that psalm, he's saying, He's letting us know that he's experiencing something so much worse than everything else he's gone through up to that point. And he has suffered like most of us, all of us, will never know. On the cross, Jesus went through eternal spiritual death. He was completely separated from his Father in heaven. He went to hell on the cross. He did that for us. He took the eternal thirst so we could have the fountain of life. And unless we see how much more than physical suffering Jesus had to endure, unless we see the depth, the unimaginable depth of his suffering, we will not understand what he accomplished for us. That's part of what the Creed means when it says that he descended into hell. And that short section of the Apostles' Creed is the most misunderstood and most neglected part of the whole creed. Now, it may also refer to 1 Peter 3, where it says Christ went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. But the evidence is scanty, and it's hard for us to understand. Now, whether or not Jesus went to Hades, which is the word for the realm of the dead, whether he went there on Holy Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday or not, we know and can rest in the effect of his death and resurrection, which is that the grip of death on us is broken, that Christ has won the victory over death for us. Jesus said it earlier that the gates of hell, Hades is the word he uses, will not overcome the church thanks to the victory he's won for us. And so we have nothing to fear individually and also as a congregation and also as the wider church of Jesus Christ, not even from death and hell. Who will separate us from the love of Jesus? The answer is no one and nothing ever. He has crossed every distance, he has broken every wall, bridged every gap with his relentless love for us. Now we use this theological term, atonement, to talk about this, to describe what Jesus accomplished in his work at the cross. This is the brokenness of our humanity. When Adam and Eve first sinned, they hid from God because they were ashamed. They were separated from him alienated from the source of life and love and light itself. But God had a plan to restore the broken relationship between himself and humanity. And so the word atonement comes from the Middle English, starting about 500 years ago, meaning to be at one with someone, to be in harmony, to no longer be separated, to experience that communion and union that we have lost. Ultimately, it's about God and His creatures being with each other in peace, in shalom, the way we were created to enjoy one another. Now, throughout Scripture, to deal with this separation and brokenness, atonement involves an innocent party receiving the punishment due to a guilty party, so the Hebrew word for atonement, kaphar, means to cover. And through the act of atonement in the Old Testament, sin is covered so that God no longer sees it. And that was achieved with the blood of an innocent animal whose innocence then extends to the repentant sinner who makes the sacrifice. And we're familiar with this principle if we've read the Old Testament as the ancient Hebrew system of temple sacrifice with all of its blood and ceremony. Now, we may have read about that, but it's still really strange and weird to us, I think. But we do know that real love, true love, love that lasts is not just a feeling, right? But that if it's real, it comes down to sacrifice. And so Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you know who your friends are when the storm comes in your life. In fair weather, you can't always be sure. And this principle, which Jesus embodies and points to, hasn't changed in our post Christian world, not at all. Think of the Hunger Games. Katniss Everdeen volunteers to take her little sister's place as tribute and so embraces almost certain death. Or Harry Potter. When evil Lord Voldemort tries to kill Harry as a baby, his mother, Lily Potter, sacrifices herself, and as a result, Voldemort can't touch Harry. When Harry much later asks Dumbledore, his teacher and mentor, to explain it, Dumbledore has this to say. He says, Your mother died to save you. Love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. No scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give us protection forever. So we know that love, at the heart of real love, is sacrifice. And it makes sense that a God who wants atonement who wants to bring us back home into his loving presence in in relationship with him. A God who pursues us and comes into the world to deal with ultimate evil, to deal with sin. That God would have to make a substitutionary sacrifice. And so the cross is the self-substitution of God. The atonement of Jesus Christ demanded that a price had to be paid for our sin. And it's substitutionary because Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice in our place. And this matters because it changes everything in our relationship with God. It's through the atonement of Jesus, through his death and resurrection, and only through that that we can be forgiven. And made new, alive in Christ, able to approach him through the new and living way made possible because the body of Jesus was broken. That's what the blood of Christ means to us. That's why we sing about it so much. I remember once bringing a friend of mine from high school to church with me, and he was freaked out by the way we sang about blood he asked me afterwards, what is wrong with you people? And I tried to explain this to him, that the meaning is something so deeply beautiful and moving to us as believers. We are thankful for the cross, even though it was the most terrible event in all of history. Because the cross is evidence that God's love for us is more powerful than anything else. Than sin, than death, than our repeated failures, There are other ways to understand the cross of Jesus, but this is most central to us. We sang about it earlier. God is holy. He hates sin and evil. Will not tolerate them. I've heard people say from time to time that they can't, that they won't believe in a God of wrath. That they only believe in a God of love. I mean, You understand that, right? We want to be loved. Wrath is frightening. But unless you believe in a God of wrath, a God who judges evil and sin, who cannot tolerate it, you'll never really understand God's love. A God who was willing to come among us and take that judgment himself. Unless you understand or start to understand God's anger at sin you'll never understand the greatness of a God who was willing to absorb that himself. That's love. That's not sentimentality. That is true and costly love. If you only believe in a God of love, then what does it cost your God to love you? If the answer is nothing much, then that is not the unique, life-changing love that God shows us in Jesus. No one has ever sacrificed like Jesus did. I love the way Tim Keller puts this. He says, we are more sinful and lost than we ever dared believe and yet more loved and accepted than we ever could have hoped for. You see the two sides of that. Our depravity, our self-centeredness. And yet Jesus comes clothes us in righteousness beyond our hope. And so when Jesus says it is finished in John 19, he's telling us about the difference his suffering makes in our lives, the hope it can give us. In Greek, it's one word, to tetelestai. And the English translation isn't quite right. It is finished means it's over, right? It sounds passive to us, But Jesus is talking about something active he's done. He's saying it from the cross. He's hanging there, unable to move. His body is destroyed. And yet what he's actually saying is, I have done it. I've done it completely. In 1 Peter 3, we read, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And so Jesus is saying, I've done everything necessary to bring you into the arms of my Father, God Almighty. Jesus didn't just get us a pardon at the cross. If you could summarize Christianity in one word, this would be it. Tetelestai. It is finished. When I was younger, I taught English for one year in Thailand. I studied in Bangkok for a few months, learned as much Thai as I could, and I went north to a school um, close to the border with Laos. And I met some monks. I was interested in Buddhism. I started reading about it um, when I was still in Canada as a teenager, and then more in Bangkok, and then uh, these monks helped me to learn about Buddhism. I'm not sure if you were aware of this, but the last words that the Buddha spoke to anyone who would follow him were strive without ceasing. Those are words that do not give hope. Those are words, as I see them, that can only lead to despair. Because we can never, through our striving, get to where we need to be. By contrast, the last words of Christ were, It is finished. I have done the striving that was needed. And so religion without the gospel says, Finish the work, it's up to you. But the gospel says, Receive the finished work. Religion without the gospel says, If you finish the work and do it well enough, then one day God might accept you and give you his love and blessing. Whereas the gospel says, receive the finished work of Jesus and you get the acceptance, the love, and the blessing right now completely. Do we believe that? We say this in the creed, I believe. But have we grasped that it is finished? Have we rested in that? Let's test this out. Let's go back to Pilate. Pilate offers all these excuses. In John's version, Pilate asks, What is truth anyway? He's justifying himself, he's rationalizing what's easiest and safest. We all do that. But how do we react to the obvious pilots around us? To those who we see as being guilty of moral failure? Some of us see ourselves as better, as superior to those people, whether they're criminals or any number of behaviors that we disapprove of. And if we assume we're better than others, well, it's clear then that we do not get the message of Jesus that it is finished. Are you the kind of person who can't really stand to be around people who you think are wrong, who are living wrongly? Do you have trouble being friendly to them, being genuinely welcoming? I think that's most of us, if not all of us. And as we do that, the reason we have that trouble loving others Who we think are wrong is because we assume that we're superior to them. And then there is the issue of our anger, the grudges we bear. If you can stay angry at someone for a long time, the only way you can do that is because you're saying to yourself, I would never do what they're doing, I am not like them. And the only way you will arrive at being able to forgive them is if you're willing to accept that you are, in fact, no better than they are. And so if you cannot forgive someone, if you're wrestling with that right now, the memory of a relationship, someone in your life today who you can't forgive, you are still trying to finish God's work. And if you really knew that your only hope was the finished work of Jesus, you would not feel superior that way. And I think that's why Pilate is in the creed. That's the answer to that question we asked earlier. We either admit that all of us are in that crowd shouting, crucify him. All of us are washing our hands of the guilt. All of us are pretending to be okay, hiding, hiding our guilt. We either admit that and confess that or we will not come to the foot of the cross. Jesus is the only one who can finish it. So what, what can we do in response? Well, I want to invite you this morning and, and in the week ahead to look to the cross again, to not be afraid of it. It does not condemn us. To see the suffering of Jesus for the freedom it brings. And we've talked about how we can practice what we're learning from the creed over the weeks in this series. And I think the practice of what we're going to celebrate later in the service is what I would commend to you. Do not miss the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Because as we come to receive the body and the blood of Jesus, all of our superiority, all of our pride, all of our self-righteousness, those things that keep us from God, from the joy, the freedom, the peace he wants for us, they melt away. You cannot come to this table with your pride. It is inadmissible. And as you are humbled by the suffering of Jesus, as you look to the cross for what really matters in your life, he will give you more, so much more. Jesus has done all that was needed so we could be forgiven, so that we could rest in his amazing grace. It is finished. Let's pray. Dear God, Sometimes we really don't have words to express how how you have come into our lives and rescued us from all that holds us back, from all that breaks our hearts, from all that would destroy us. And so this morning we say again, as we prepare to come to the table, where your cross comes into view most clearly for us we just we lift up our thanks amen